This episode of The Citadel Cafe is brought to you by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe to find out how you can become a patron and help make this show possible. This is the Citadel Cafe, episode number 383 for Wednesday, November 25th, 2020. My name is Joel Duggan and the Citadel Cafe is where my friends and I hang out to talk about the geeky stuff that we are into and boy do we have a geeky show for you this week. Joining me is Alistair McFly. You can find him at iMcFly on Twitter or if you're into streaming and Minecraft, you can check him out at Alistair McFly on Twitter and Alistair McFly on Twitch. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you for having me back. This is exciting. Yes, we have a very Star Trek focused show uh, this week. And uh, you were you are one of the uh, top two people that I wanted to bring on to talk about this. Uh, the other person is my friend James, the civilian. Hello, James. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, my pleasure, man. First time on the show. Uh, first time on a podcast, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And uh, I think we're going to have a a good time. So I, I guess to kind of get people familiar with you, James, because it is your first time here, uh, a, a little background perhaps about your, your nerdy history, just to kind of bring people up to speed. Sure. Uh, I guess we'll start with Star Trek, since that's the focus of this episode. I've basically been watching Star Trek for as long as I can remember. I watched TOS reruns when I was a small child, uh, but I would say that TNG was, quote, my Star Trek. That was the one I really grew up on. And of course, I watched DS9 and Voyager. Um, but I kind of watched reruns of that. I didn't really watch it uh, sort of in sequence, as you would say. I didn't do that until I was an adult. Um, so I guess I would start there with my my geek history and some of the basic stuff as well. We play a lot of video games. Uh, I watch a lot of science fiction TV and, and movies if I can. Um, but Star Trek's kind of the big one, I think. Nice. And uh, I know, Alistair, we've we've had you on the show before with, with regards to your Star Trek history, but uh, what have you been doing that's been nerdy in the last, you know, uh, couple of months since you've been on the show? Oh, God. Uh, well, I've been starting a book, is one thing. Uh, and also beginning to go awesome. through a bit of a midlife crisis, I think, as well. Um, <laughs> While writing the novel, as as one does when yeah. they write a novel. You know? Not not even just for the novel. So we'll, we'll talk about the, the book first. So it's, well, it's not really a novel. It's a guide. Um, okay. It's a guide uh, on Star Trek. Uh, actually, I've had oh. a lot of people kind of come to me sort of saying, you know, I want to get into Star Trek now, you know, and, and watch it. But I don't know where to begin because there's just so much of it now. So it's really just an unofficial guide to oh. navigating over over 50 years of the final frontier um so it puts things into context as to when things take place and to give you a couple of different ways of of watching it either chronologically and and so on just to kind of get a you know the most out of it really but also as spoiler free as possible that's another thing like you could go on to wikipedia stuff you know and uh and probably have quite a lot ruined so i kind of want to kind of keep it pretty spoiler free for people there uh but when it comes to the kind of midlife crisis thing i've got a new addiction a new sort of a hobby that is taking a lot of my money right now <laughs> and that is home arcade machines 
Oh, right. uh, oh boy. <laughs> yes. Um, so to give you an idea as to how bad this addiction has gotten. Um, so my first one just arrived today. I say first one. Um, so I got a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cabinet that has both Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Turtles in Time. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's halfway being constructed. I've actually taken a break just to, to come on the show. Um, and before it had even arrived, I've ordered two more. <laughs> I've, I've got I've got an X-Men versus Street Fighter cabinet that has that. It's got Marvel versus Capcom. I've got a Miss Pac-Man machine coming. There's basically 10 games in all uh, across three different ones. And the big problem that I've got is looking through my apartment because I've been tidying it up and I've suddenly realized I've got room for more. <laughs> so, you know, this, this is going to become a very expensive hobby, I think. Now, um, are so these full-size cabinets? Uh, they're three-quarter size. So they've got a what they call a riser. They buy a, a company called Arcade 1UP. Um, and they, uh, they have this little riser that stands up. So you can either have it without and it's then better for little kids or the riser puts the control panel at the exact height that the original arcade machines would have it at. But it's a little uh, bit smaller because they've got um, a flat screen display as opposed to a big CRT monitor right. built in there. Um, and it's a lot better for home use to have them like that because they weigh it's somewhere between 60 and 80 pounds versus 360 pounds for what the original cabinets would be. Wow. Which is just massive and heavy. So it's they're definitely better for home use. Um, but I've, I've got a feeling that I'm going to end up with quite a few more by the end of next year. So <laughs> I know that I, I've played both. I remember Turtles in Time quite vividly. That was at the bowling alley mm. when I was a kid. And I was more interested in playing that than I was interested in bowling, which... <laughs> <laughs> which was which is funny, uh, and I played X Men versus Street Fighter. Although I know that there was a number of versions of that, I don't remember which one it was that, that I was actually playing. Uh, James, did you ever play Turtles in Time? I didn't. That was um, a little maybe before my time. But I will say, uh, Alistair, um, when this pandemic blows over, can we hang out? I really like to play <laughs> X Men versus Street Fighter. Post pandemic party at mine. Yes. Post pandemic oh, party. A, that would be great. That's actually quite good alliteration. As well. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> And, and there will be many of those for many different reasons, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm also going to add that the Turtles cabinet is four player. It has four oh. control oh, nice. sticks. Yes. Yeah, so the other one's two player, but this is this is a four player setup. It, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm really excited to to get that going so that's going to be the rest of my evening nice basically. i am i am 99 sure that i did eventually beat turtles in time i don't remember how many quarters it took us but we did we totally <laughs> did it because uh we would and we would have spaced it out like sometimes my, my buddy scott and i would have been playing at the same time and then other times like if i didn't have any quarters he would have to keep going while i got more like all that kind of stuff uh but mm. i remember one of the the things that struck me the most about that was them kind of like breaking the fourth wall when you would be able to grab foot shoulders and do like a special toss and they would fly yeah. up and hit the quote unquote camera <laughs> and crack mm. the screen like not like like not physically but there would be like an animation of the glass cracking when they hit the the screen of the of the arcade cabinet uh i thought that was really cool um, I, yeah, I, there's also a moment where you've got Shredder and you're kind of looking from behind Shredder. And so it's the same thing. You're just basically chucking foot soldiers at Shredder's face. Right. And you're just kind of watching from behind him and stuff. Yeah. It, what? It's, um, it's so good. I'm trying to remember who I played. I'm pretty sure. 
I think I liked Donatello the best in the game, despite Michelangelo being my favorite turtle. Mm. Um, so who's your go-to? Um, for me, it was it was Michelangelo anyway. I mean, when I was a kid playing it, mm. uh, it kind of like yourself, like uh, it wasn't a bowling alley; it was a swimming pool. So it was like my big um, reason to get dried and dressed as quickly as possible to mm. have more time on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did like Michelangelo and playing him. Um, Donatello tends to be better in games because when they do make the characters slightly different, which they did in the arcades, um, Donatello just has more reach mm-hmm. with his bow staff. Yeah. And that helps a lot. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was this technical back then, but it strikes me like these days when I think about these kind of games, like Raph having, having uh, his sigh... I feel like he'd be a great, like kind of like stun lock. Like he'd be rapid fire, kind of like hitting people a lot before they were able to actually hit him back. Uh, yeah, I, and that, Mike... that's that's kind of how it was. Like there was a difference in range, there was a difference in speed, speed there was a difference in strength. Right uh, on the the different turtles, so it is a different experience depending on which turtle you're playing, which I thought was really cool, especially back then. Yeah. Now with X Men versus Street Fighter, uh, I was a Street Fighter guy. I played Street Fighter two like it was going out of style on the Nintendo sixty. Mm. No, Nintendo, Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Yeah, Super Nintendo, Super Nintendo. yeah. So James, you, you sound like you're a big Street Fighter slash Street Fighter versus X-Men guy, or is this would this be your first experience with it? It wouldn't be my first experience. I would definitely not say I'm good at Street Fighter. Mm. Um, I think the thing that stands out for me for X-Men versus Street Fighter and a lot of those kind of Capcom 90s fighting games um, was actually the art. For me, yeah. the, the art as a kid growing up in the 90s with that art and stuff like the X-Men cartoon show, that was actually a really big inspiration mm. for me to start drawing as a kid and to continue drawing as an adult. I've actually like bought art books related to Street Fighter and Marvel uh, because of those games. So for me, it was like, the arc that I really remember. and I played them a little bit when I was a kid. I wouldn't say it was good, and I've continued to play Street Fighter over the years. Again, not good. But um, yeah, for me, it's the art that stands out. Yeah, they I do always... have... Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Alistair. Uh, well, they do have a Street Fighter cabinet as well, and that's got all the artwork on the sides and everything as well. Uh, they are There are rumors that they're going to be bringing out a newer version because it was one of their earlier models. But one of the things that I do love about the attention to detail is that on the original arcade cabinet, Balrog's name had a typo, and it was Barlog, and they put oh. that exact typo on their reproduction arcade cabinet, which I thought was a nice touch. <laughs> I appreciate um, that kind of attention to detail. Yeah, that's and that's it. a fun it's, inside it's joke really too. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like the fighting games. I don't. It's been a long time since I've played one. I remember trying to find a, one that I liked later on, like with modern games. And the last one that I played, and it wasn't necessarily a good fighting game so much as it was just an interesting story, was the uh, the uh, Injustice. Uh, and I think I played that's what I wanted to bring up. Actually, yeah. was Injustice and Injustice the Ninja 2. Turtles. I think are Injustice too. Oh, are they in Injustice 2? Maybe I didn't play Injustice yeah. 2. They're DLC, I think. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I've seen videos. I've never played it, but I have seen videos yeah. online of it. It I liked it because of all the story segments. You're like, you can, it's one of those games that you can kind of like, you can thumb your nose at whatever gameplay, good or bad. But the, the story was interesting in terms of like a different take on all the DC superheroes and what's going down with like a bad Superman. I mean, not my favorite story. I don't like, I don't tend to like, you know, anti-heroes or Superman as a villain, but, but it was an interesting like there was a correct me if I'm wrong, James, but there was like a a universal like there was a, a 
multiverse thing because there were at some point the flash had to fight the flash or you had to fight batman as yourself or whatever like you ultimately had to fight yourself at some point it's been a while since i played the story mode for injustice 2 it was a couple years ago but i do recall those fights having to sort of fight yourself i don't remember i don't remember what the story setup was for that though yeah. i apologize no, I think I think it was across. I mean, it's DC, so there's usually a multiverse somewhere. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I, because I and I, because I'm not a big Mortal Kombat fan. I know that that might sound people might be poo pooing me, but I just I've never really liked it. Even when it first came out, I was like, meh. I mean, it's fine, but I much prefer the the Street Fighter stuff. Probably for the same reasons that you did, James. Probably because of the art and the animation and the you know the classical stuff. I did remember liking things like Virtual Fighter for the novelty of like being able to move in 3D space. You know, like t- to go around your opponent. Um, but I I think the last time I played Street Fighter was probably like one of the turbos or something. So there's there's a way more characters now than I ever remember. Because um, I played with the original, I think there was only eight, maybe 10 to start off with. Uh, that sounds about right. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll clarify when you once you got to Street Fighter 2 era, then it was eight or 10 characters. Street Fighter yes. 1, it was just reading 10. Right. Yeah, but yeah. nobody counts Street Fighter One. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody remembers. <laughs> well, that's that's what I remember. I remember this conversation one time we were talking about it with some friends. It's like Street Fighter Two. Yeah, it's like did anybody ever play Street Fighter One? No. Um, one of my first fighting games, which is actually similar to Turtles in Time, that I remember was uh, Double Dragon Two uh, on mm. the NES. Uh, and again, did not play Double Dragon One. But when I bought the NES, actually, I got it for my birthday. I think uh, I double dragon two was out and it just looked so much better than one i thought well why bother with one i'll just play i'll just play two i mean at that point on the nas back in the mid 80s like you the storyline was basically like your girlfriend got kidnapped again so (laughs) what happened in the first one well she was kidnapped and we rescued her what about this one well she got kidnapped again we have to go rescue her okay (laughs) i'm on board um but yeah it's been it's been a while since i've played anything like that and um I'm actually looking forward to trying more of those kinds of things because most of what I've been playing the last little while has been PC first person or top down. So like Minecraft Dungeons or Minecraft or uh, Borderlands 3 and No Man's Sky, like that kind of an experience. And so a fighting game would be a great lean back experience on an Xbox Series X if I ever get my hands on one, which does not look like it's going <laughs> to happen anytime soon. Uh, however, uh, before we move on, speaking of video games, I did want to pass on a tip from friend of the show, Ryan Murphy, who turned me onto this. Currently right now, uh, I think it might only be until tomorrow, the 26th of November. Uh, so don't wait. Uh, Xbox Game Pass Ultimate Sale. Uh Best Buy and Amazon, you can get three months for $29.99 Canadian. So rather than $16.99 a month, that's $9.99 a month. It's like 40% off. Uh, It's a great deal. And it is actually better than the Xbox All Access, which I've been talking about on the show for a few weeks. So with Xbox All Access, you have to sign up for 24 months and you save, you get about... uh, I'd say $2 off a month over the course of the two years, uh, which is not 40%. Uh, you're paying something like $15.99 or, or $14.99 instead of $17.99. And uh, with uh, this uh, Best Buy and Amazon combo, uh, Best Buy, I believe, is limiting the purchase to one per person, but Amazon is not. 
so depending on who's buying and what you're going to use it for, uh, you can get a full year uh, of of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, which is applied to both Xbox and the PC uh, for uh, $10 a month, which is slick. Um, so I'm going to go that route, I think. Uh, I have spoken with you, Alistair, about this, I think, on, on via text message and stuff. But I think I'm going to switch and change my tune. Uh, I'm tired of trying to figure out what the heck EB Games is doing in Canada. And I'm just going to buy the <laughs> first... Well, really what I want to do is I want to get it from uh, Best Buy, I think. Because uh, I would I would get it from Amazon too if they had stock. But, but Best Buy strikes me as it's still something I could possibly even like purchase and either pick up or have shipped or whatever. Um, but mm. Best Buy has a deal where if you pick up the Xbox Series X at full price, uh, then you can, uh, if you decide to pick up a second controller, which has always been my plan, you get $15 off the controller. Uh, so I can save a little bit that way. And uh, I'll be, bad. yeah, I'll be buying the Game Pass Ultimates anyway, um, because it's a code. It doesn't activate until you redeem the code. Uh, and what's nice about this is that I could buy six months worth, uh, worth of Game Pass Ultimate and then maybe in June when the weather is nicer and I maybe want to do more hiking than I do want to you know, sit in the house and play video games, then I can just not have Game Pass active for a couple months and then like pick up another code and do it some other time. So um, uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes, uh, the Xbox Game Pass Ultimate sale happening right now. It's part of what is i guess a deluge of black friday deals <laughs> i've uh i've seen several i'm not seeing anything groundbreaking uh you know i'm i'm in the market for a lot of new things like want to get a pair of headphones you know i'm trying to pick up some new stuff but really most of what i'm seeing for black friday sales seems to be old stuff like tvs from last year um games older games console games from the xbox one are all on sale but nothing new is on sale uh, well, mainly the nothing is new for the Xbox Series X because barely anybody has the system. So no one's buying the <laughs> games uh, or selling the games on, on sale. But uh, anyway, uh, we can get into the meat of this week's conversation, which is going to center around Star Trek Discovery, specifically season three. But we have a unique conversation to be had here because uh, I've been up to date on Discovery, as has Alistair, but James only just caught up to all of discovery uh in what the last five weeks six weeks james yeah about five six weeks i've watched all 35 episodes wow okay um so right up until episode six which is the most recent uh, episode of season three full-on spoilers folks so if you're not caught up and you're worried about that kind of stuff come back to us later when you've watched a few more episodes of the season uh, or if you've unfortunately not watched any of Discovery, well, why, were you, why, why were you here in the first place? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I just want to kind of like rip that Band-Aid off now so that we can just have a free-for-all. But uh, I do want to start with you, James, because Alistair and I being more familiar with the first and second season, because we've already talked about it here on the show, uh, since you know, you're a long-time uh, Trek watcher, Trek, Trek fan, what like what are your initial thoughts and feelings on on discovery so far Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right i'm not sure where to begin right um, so we'll <laughs> let's let's start with like did, did like, after your first let's say like three or four or five episodes like did you like it or did you have to slog through or did you enjoy the experience so i maybe we'll, we'll start at the very beginning that makes the most sense um, I will say I did watch the first couple of episodes when they first came out in 2017, I want to say, and I did not really enjoy 
what I saw, and I put the show down. Uh, and then when I was asked about coming on the podcast, that's when I started my big marathon run of all these episodes in five, six weeks. Uh, so I did find I had to power through the first three or four episodes. I, I still did not like them, even upon second viewing. I did think, uh, once it got around like the middle of the season, episodes five, six, I actually had some some fun. I think we had some some really good episodes there. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, it was when I think we saw Harry Mudd for the first time. That little Harry Mudd arc I actually thought was, was fun. And then we got to the, some of the Mirror Universe stuff, which I also thought was pretty fun, uh, later in season one. And then I kind of found uh, end of season one into season two, I felt the show kind of got a bit more uneven. Um, there would be like a good episode here or there, and then you have a few bad episodes that I, I really didn't enjoy uh, as well. Um, and then I got to season three, the most recent season, and um, I actually had a friend tell me it, season three gets better. And I would say he's, on the whole, I think he's right. I, I think the show, the last uh, four or five episodes actually uh, of season three have been pretty good. I think the show has kind of turned around a little bit, so I'm, I'm much more interested now uh, to see where the show goes. Um, I do have some really fundamental problems with the first couple seasons of the show. Like just starting at the basic premise of the show. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if we want to dive into those right away. Yeah, um, I mean, sure. Like, so what? Well, like, what's the first thing that that gets your Star Trek red shirt in a bunch? <laughs> so I, I think for me, it kind of goes back to JJ Trek a little bit. I was not the biggest fan of the the JJ movies. Uh, I thought the 2009 one was okay. Um, I really did not like Into Darkness, though, to the point where I didn't even go see Star Trek Beyond. Um, and I, I think going into Discovery, it was a show that I thought wanted to look like the J.J. movies to sort of pull in that audience. But it was in the main timeline because that was one of the criticisms of the J.J. movies was, well, it's this alternate universe and you know, it's not connected to anything else you really know. So they put Discovery in the main timeline. And then they put it in the original series era. So once again, we're, we just had three movies with Spock and Kirk. And now we're going back to that era of Star Trek. And kind of going into it, I wanted something that was maybe in the future, something a little more forward-looking, rather than going back to an era of Star Trek that I feel like we've kind of just recently mined through and gotten through. So that's, that's the whole... Pre- and oh, that's one of the challenging things about prequels or any kind of like insertion into timelines is that you kind of know what happens with certain characters or certain events, especially if people are really into Trek. There's certain things that happen in certain star dates that they can kind of say, all right, well, yes, you're inserting this story into here that we've not seen, but we kind of know what events are going around it. And it takes a little bit out of the, um, not the mystery, but like the discovery of a se- series when some of the other events are... You know, it's and it becomes difficult to include those events and have it not be fan service, like have it be something that really means something as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, now we're going to mention this particular battle or this particular, you know, um, person, whether it's Spock or Sarek or whoever. Um, And that's something that I found I'm not as a, a big a Trekkie that that kind of stuff is knowledge for me. So if it happens, it doesn't really bother me because I don't notice. Um, but for me, I found that the first couple seasons of, of discovery, the first season I'm with you, I found, I was like on the seesaw of like, the, am I, am I going to like it? Am I not going to like it? It definitely took a couple s- episodes to get going. Uh, 
Correct me if I'm wrong. I think season two is when they did like a full season story. It wasn't so much episodic as it was like the entire series season was just like That's this right. one thing. I liked right. that a lot. I really enjoyed that. I mm-hmm. also really enjoyed Pike in season two. Um, that was that was that was season two, right? That was season two. Yes, yes. it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just and part of it is just like the character and the charisma and I just enjoy the actor um, Anson Mount's just fantastic. And like, so stuff like that is just really, that felt more Trek to me than season one did. I, 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 kind I can of, certainly pro- go ahead. Go ahead. Answer. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I can certainly provide a bit of context um, around a lot of the kind of behind the scenes as to why we've ended up with Trek the way that it has been, even with the JJ series as well. Um, because there have been so many licensing issues when it comes to movies and TV that the reason why the JJ series had to be different and in a parallel universe was because they didn't have the rights to everything. They didn't have the rights to the exact look of the show and things like that. So that's why that kind of took on its own kind of style. Mm. Um, And so when they were kind of bringing Star Trek back to television, they did want to sort of keep everything a little bit more modern uh, because they don't want to only approach the show and have it look dated pretty much as soon as it arrives. Uh, but also they, they wanted to do something different to be able to push it further. Uh, but one of the things that I find really interesting is I don't know if, if either of you have seen short tracks. No, but I do have a strong opinion on short tracks. <laughs> right. Um, There was certainly a very experimental kind of thing for them. They were trying a lot of different styles of short form things. Um, Not all of them are great. There were were a couple that are good. Uh, But there's one interesting one called Calypso, which actually has a lot of stuff that we're seeing in season three appear. And that came out when they were making season one. So there's been a lot of stuff where... Um, you know, they've kind of gone through and they've had, um, you know, as we were saying, they went into the mirror universe and then we've had Pike. They've now been pushed forward 900 years into the future. But that 900 years in the future was already teased back during season one, during the middle of that. So they've been planning this out from the beginning. A lot of people are kind of seeing it as, oh, they've been doing a bit of course correction. And in some cases, they absolutely have been doing so. But the overall plan was always for it to be set in the far future, not for it to be completely restricted as a prequel in the way that Enterprise was. They wanted right. to kind of start it off there, which, uh, which I do find pretty interesting for it. And that's one, of the things wanna... I, yeah, I, that's one of the things I really like about season three so far is that they've, they did make this 900-year jump into the future, and it, it does sort of give you this clean slate, kind of crazy speculation because no one's done this before in Trek. So the, I would mm. imagine it gives the writers a lot more wiggle room and also just like a lot more things to explore with uh, what they've called in season three, the burn, which uh, mm. as far as I can tell is basically all warp drives just kind of went boom or, or any dilithium crystals just kind of went boom for an unexplained reason as of yet, uh, which dismantled, most of the Federation, there are a handful of, of survivors and ships and things. And um, it it changes the dynamic, I guess, in terms of the Federation versus the rest of the, you know, known universe. And it creates an interesting, unprecedented kind of like 
writing opportunity for like them to explore all kinds of things. You know, people are homesick. Mm. People are trying to establish their, uh, what's their mission? What's their objective? Because the Federation is in shambles. We don't have the same, you know, stuff, uh, the same sort of mission that we did before. And, um, that I, that kind of thing I find interesting. They don't always do it very well in season three, I find, but, <laughs> but it, it, that, that premise alone in the beginning of season three had me going, Oh, okay. They really did it. Like they really did go and we're staying here. Like it's, it was a nice, yeah. it was a nice commitment for them to do it, for them to stay there and have them not retcon it and just travel back in time two episodes later. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's nice yeah. that they're like, okay, we've done it. We've pulled the plug. This is, this is our new reality. This is how we have to go from here. And there's certainly a lot of things that they're trying to change um, from what we've had with Trek before. Because when Star Trek started out, the crew has kind of gotten together by the end of the pilot episode. Whether it's, uh, you know, the original series, Next Generation, Voyager, you know, DS9, Enterprise, like they've all kind of started to gel and they're already a crew at the very beginning. Whereas with Discovery, they wanted to kind of start out where they're not really a crew yet. And they wanted to kind of build that together so that when they have suddenly thrown 900 years and they're dealing with all of this, they're trying to deal with it together kind of like more as a family. Mm -hmm. And I do like that uh, Star Trek's gotten to this very kind of, oh, we can just get anywhere in, in the galaxy now quite quickly. You know, and the idea of going out and exploring was becoming very old hat. You know, um, as the new seasons kind of came out. So having the burn kind of has them feel very restricted. Like for us to get somewhere is going to take forever because of, you know, the whole burn thing. But Discovery in itself is in a unique position because they have the spore drive, making them the only ship that can actually get anywhere instantaneously. So it's a, a very different side of the coin that's playing uh, off each other in the same kind of place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, to go back to what you were saying, James, about the, the things that you d were decidedly like either not track or things that you felt were problematic outside of that, those first episodes in, in season one, was there other things that kind of stuck in your there side were, with, with the first th two seasons? There were a few, yeah, there are a few other things. Uh, I want to touch on the short tracks really quickly just because. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause, cause Joel, you actually talked about this on a previous episode. Um, they made. One of the short tracks, uh, a very important piece of the story in season two, and hmm. it, you didn't watch short tracks uh, like I didn't. I did not watch those. Uh, you get to near the end of season two, and you know they do that bit uh, previously on Discovery. Uh, I was watching that, and there are all these scenes that I just do not remember. And I'm like, I just watched all of season two in the last two weeks. I would definitely remember this, and I had to break out my phone and go Google it. And oh, it's stuff from a short track that they made a pivotal plot point. Maybe not pivotal. Well, they made a plot point uh, in the main show, uh, in the finale, that if you didn't watch that short track, you'd be very confused. And I, I did not appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm much like you had talked about in a previous episode, Joel. I, I kind of want to just watch Discovery, the show. I don't want to have to go chase down these short tracks or this little short form content. I just want to watch the show. Yeah, it's the same reason why I don't want to go read Star Wars comics to know what's, you know, to be familiar with characters that are going to show up in cartoons or movies or things like that. And um, to, 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 to that point, um, there's now something happening with The Mandalorian where, and I won't get into any like specific details in case people haven't seen the most recent one, but there's a character from the 
cartoons that is being well several that are being realized in live action star wars because it's all one big happy disney family now and uh that's new for star wars to be able to say like hey that you know that character that you're familiar with from the animated series they're going to be in the mandalorian and what they're doing there what's nice about it is that so far it does not matter to you if you haven't seen the cartoon like it's 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 a nice thing where the people that have seen the cartoon are excited but the people that haven't are just like okay cool new person like it just it's it, it's inconsequential um and I, that i feel is the right way to do it um because i remember if you i think i remember if you're if you're talking about it is it the one where like someone's a princess or something um yeah the very first one because they, they had four of them yeah in season one and it was the first one runaway and it's Tilly's friend, right? It's Tilly's yes, yeah, it's Tilly's, Tilly's friend. friend that's her, yeah. yeah. I remember that, and I mean, like, I didn't. It was one of those things that my experience didn't suffer. Suffer. I mean, I got the last time on Star Trek where they showed you like the bits that you needed to know. Plus, Alistair is a text message away, so I kind of said, <laughs> "What the heck is going on?" And he went like point one, point two, point three. Oh, okay, thanks. I'm fine now. But when when you when you say, "Okay, well." I want the show, like you said, James, on its own rails to give me all the information that I need. Like, it's great that the sort if the short treks are bonus, but I don't want to go hunt down YouTube stuff. And, and this could be just really old fashioned of me, but I don't particularly like Star Trek in that kind of experience in short form. Like I don't want to watch a six minute or 12 mm. minutes or even half an hour. I think Star Trek does well at the you know, 45 to 60 minute kind of like hour long drama, really. Um, I think it's been like that for a very long time for, I think a very good reason. Uh, and, and I find that not just with Star Trek, but with other content that's usually longer, like I don't want to watch a 15 minute drama. I want to watch a 15 minute, like soundbite interview, you know, uh, maybe a comedy sketch, but like not, not a full drama chopped up in a little bit. Um, and that's, and I think it's got something to do with like how we as people tell stories and how long it takes for a narrative to develop. Most of the time I feel like an hour is too short. So when you're pulling it down to 15 minutes or, or however long, the, how long were the short treks, Alistair? Were they averaged like what, 10, 15? Uh, yeah, they were, they were like 10 minutes yeah. or so in length. They, they weren't long at all. And they, yeah. they kind of came out halfway, uh, like you, you'd have the season broke up into two. So, you know, as some shows will, will do so. And so these were kind of like little bits in the middle just to kind of keep you going during the downtime. Right. Right, right, right. You know, and like the, uh, you know, they had like an episode with Harry Mudd. They had one that was a, a backstory of Saru, what it was like for him before he joined Starfleet. Right. And why he's the only Kelpian in Starfleet, uh, that kind of thing. And so mm. they, they kind of give you these nice little extra bits whilst you're waiting for the next part to come out. Mm. Um you know, and and season two, I think if I remember rightly, they, um, I mean, they were coming out pretty much weekly, uh, just between sort of October and January. So it really kind of kept you going over the holidays, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I like them. They they were definitely experimental. They were definitely them sort of trying out different styles. Like there's there's an animated one, which you know the animation style is good, but I didn't feel that that really kind of fit in well. But it's the kind of thing that if you were a parent and you, you know, and, you know, Discovery is definitely not really for children this time no. around. Um, that was something that you could at least show you to your kids and go, look, here's some new Star Trek that you can see. 
yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. That kids would enjoy. And I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch, you know, the people doing these short treks for trying something new, because I think one of the things mm. that I've certainly complained about on the Citadel Cafe a number of times is like the same old, same old gets boring. Uh, you and I, Alistair, have had conversations about the CW <laughs> reigns of shows <laughs> uh, that, that, that are just cookie cutter and get very old very quickly. And so, I mean, if someone's mm. throwing the spaghetti noodle at the wall and seeing if it sticks, great, like at least try it but like I, i'm hoping that they don't return to that this year because I, I i don't feel mm. the need i feel that i'm, I'm i mean I, i'm kind of on the fence with season three and we'll and we'll get there but i i i don't know that my attention would really be pulled in by short treks for season three over the holidays mm. um so james yeah, I, th I think a lot of the pull is going to be for uh, the new series with captain pike the fact that they're moving towards that now right Right, uh, you know, and that's definitely a response to fans just kind of going, "We want more Pike." Yeah, uh, that's what we want. <laughs> yeah, and that's a stark difference I'm noticing between season two and season three is that I do miss that. Um, they're different. I don't, I don't want to say bad or good. I think for me personally, just a a, a manner of taste in terms of what mm. I like about Trek and what I like about Kirk and what I like about. You know, not necessarily Picard. Well, Picard all the time, but not Picard all the time. But there's some moments with Picard when you're just like, yeah, okay, that's this is what I want from Trek. And then other times, it's it's a little bit bit more even. Whereas I find with something I did like about the Abrams movies, uh, not all of them, but like what I did like about some of them was that kind of like confident swagger and banter that you get with Kirk and Scotty, and like the, the once they kind of know each other a little bit better. Uh, and mm. I found I got that kind of swagger from Pike, but it wasn't like dismissal. It wasn't like rude. It was more like just confident and, and, um, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for besides confident, but yeah, like I just, I, I like that sort of style. Well, you, you, you know, you can rib a friend cause you know that they can take it and that they'll take it the right way. Yeah. Yeah, that well, you've got that thing. familiarity with them. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um so James I don't want to be I don't want to be all negative. Uh, no, no, that's what I was gonna ask. So I'm like gonna say some good stuff. Yeah, so going uh, back to your, your experience, like what what are some things from Discovery season one and two that you really enjoyed? So kind of to tie in what you just talked about with the JJ movies, one of the things I think they got right with the JJ movies was the casting. I thought the casting was great. And one of the things mm -hmm. I really like about Discovery is the casting. I think the supporting cast especially are almost all great. I think I really like Saru. I I know you're a little uh, a little more uneven on Stamets, Joel. I I really like Stamets. I like I like Tilly. I think Tilly might have been my favorite character in season one. I, I really like the supporting cast in the show. Um, and as well, I while I might not necessarily appreciate the look of the JJ movies, I can't fault anyone for the work they put in. It's very clear that a lot of time and effort and money and work went into making the show look as good as it does. It's a very well-made one of those, if you will. Mm, yeah. uh, just It's just not necessarily kind of my taste. I kind of liked the, the clean lines and clean edges that we kind of got from sort of like 90s Trek. But right. it is very well-made. I can't fault anybody for the work they put in. And uh, kind of to your point uh, earlier, Alistair, about uh, almost like updating the sets, I do agree that... And this is kind of why I don't think a prequel really works for Star Trek anymore, is that you can't go back to TOS era and have it look like it did in the 60s. Like, the future is just not knobs and buttons anymore. That's, <laughs> that's just not what it is, right? Like, you, you, obviously, you have to update it. And I think they did a really good job on the Enterprise of finding this balance where 
it looks really great. It looks super slick. It looks updated. It looks like the future. But at the same time, it still finds its fit in the canon, if you will, of TOS. Yes, they've got touchscreens mm. and stuff, which Kirk never had. But it's still, like, they make it fit. They make it kind of work. Whereas I found, especially in Season 1 with Discovery, they were just introducing all these new technologies, like just a level of technology that they just didn't have, like holograms were suddenly a thing. And um, they had the Spore Drive, which I... I some people think the Spore Drive itself sounds silly. I don't mind that, but the idea that we're going to introduce Jump Drive into Star Trek and then somehow right it away, introducing that, that level of technology was something that I didn't necessarily like. But it all looks really well done, and I, I, I can't fault them for that. And then, like I yeah, said, the casting's I, great. Yeah, I, mem- I remember feeling a little bit odd about the holograms at first. Um, but one thing that they, they tried to kind of make clear, certainly in some behind-the-scenes stuff, is that it's not the same as you would get from a holodeck. Um, that they are kind of in between what we would have now and what a holodeck would be, where holodecks are able to produce um, matter that you can physically touch, whereas these are literally just holograms. So there's no real physical interaction. It would just kind of respond the way you would, in, in the same way that you would have a VR headset. Things could respond to you being there, but there's no actual physical tactile sensation. So we get I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on that. I'm gonna jump in on that. This is a nitpick. I know this is an mm. absolute nitpick. This is me <laughs> just being a jerk. I get it. I, I admit it. But there's a scene in one of the first couple episodes where Burnham is talking to Sarek by hologram. So he's a hologram in her mm. quarters, something like that. And he sits on her desk. And I just couldn't help but notice it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know why. I'm like he can't sit on her desk. There's. He's not in. He's not in the room. <laughs> I know. The, the, the only. The only thing that I could imagine is that all the rooms are laid out the same on the ship. Is the only kind of right? thing that I could it's think of thing. with that. That's yeah. the only way that that would total, work. I admit it's a total nitpick, but that was. But no, that I, was I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. That's it, great. It took me a minute to realize that when you guys were talking about the holograms, you're talking about the communications. Like you're talking about when yes. they, yes. in 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 the next generation, they just bring people up on screen and talk that way. And in in mm. uh, in TOS, it would have just been over intercom, right, or over comms. Like they don't really have. Well, they would have had screens, I guess, on in TOS. Um, yeah. Well, but, the in, in TOS, it, it happens in both TOS and TNG that they're not flat screens, the view screens they are a 3D projection inside, uh, which is why, like, especially Next Generation, when the camera's at an angle, you can see Picard looking face-to-face at whoever's on the view screen. It's not because, you know, the face isn't looking directly at you at the camera because it is right. a 3D space within that. Right. Um, and then DS9 did similar to what they're doing now where they did actually have it where you could have somebody as a physical body kind of projected into there, but they weren't transparent at all. And all that was was that the uh, um, the producers and directors wanted to have a little bit more visual um, kind of arguments and stuff between the people rather than just being across a view screen. They wanted yeah. them to almost be there face to face. And, and it, uh, and that's and how it they makes sense. And it, I think it's one of those things where like, I, I, I know your nitpick, James, but like I can also give it like the the 
the nod of like, well, it's probably a better scene because that actor is like physically there and then they do some cool mm. effect on them afterwards to make them look like they're not there, you know, whether they, you know, when they, they blip out of existence, that kind of thing. Um, cause I, like I said, like I, or, or like you were saying, James, I, I really, I don't for a moment think, oh wow, cool set. I am on discovery like you know when you're in <laughs> any of these scenes and some of which especially in season three are very heavily green screened because they have to be because everything freaking moves um yeah. it, i'm still not like going like oh wow that's a really cool special effect it's always like wow because a lot of times what the actors are nearby physically is a real thing like whether it's a ship with a bunch of plants on it or whether it's you know uh uh a desert planet or whatever, like whatever they're walking across is real something, you know, whether it's soundstage or, or something, there's always something very physical close to the actors. And I find that only once or twice have I really felt like, Oh, wow, this is, this is definitely a small set. Uh, and it was in season three and it wasn't like a big special effect scene. It was like one of the Western style bar fight scenes. And it's like, Oh yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is a 20 by 20 soundstage uh, that because everything else felt so grand. It also, it just felt so claustrophobic and there wasn't a lot of, um, I'm not sure what the word is. Just the atmosphere, the, the, the depth of field, I guess, in the filming was just not there uh, when compared to, even in the even in the corridors on Discovery, I never think soundstage. Like it just it always feels mm. so vast when they do it. And I agree with you. I think they put they the, the work that they put into the show definitely shows. Uh, and before we get into you know breaking apart season three a little bit more, um, I'm just gonna say straight up, I think the acting across the board is really good. I there's not one particular person outside of maybe Giorgio that I'm not on board with but i don't necessarily think that's the actor's fault i think it's just the writing um, but everybody is just putting in some really cool well-rounded performances depending on which episode it is sometimes actors are required to be a little bit more even throughout the whole episode whereas um i f i feel like there's a lot more range happening in season three specifically for michael burnham um because hmm. uh, i to, I, th to... I think even Sorry, go on. No, I was just saying, I just, no, because if you've got something to add, because I've got a specific example for season three for Burnham. Uh, well, I, I was just uh, sort of thinking just the the supporting crew, we're starting to get so much more from them. These other yes. people that were on the bridge that we didn't really get to know that much in season one, we start to see a little bit more of season two. And now season three, I'm feeling like those, these characters are actually really interesting to me and I'm wanting even more from them. Um, like Kayla Detmer, the navigator, yeah um she is fantastic in it and i love that she's taken on all of the stress and anxiety and pressure of the fact that she feels responsible for even getting them to the future in the first place and she has a bit of a breakdown and kind of shows that like the amount of um the toll that it's having on everybody's mental health and mm. they're all just kind of putting on the very friendly staff fleet kind of like oh everything's fine and she just breaks down and goes, we're not fine. This is not fine. Yeah. And is that they Nelson? all have to deal with it. Hmm? Is, that, is that Lieutenant Nelson? No, that's somebody else. Uh, Detmer. Detmer. Detmer, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Emily Cotts. Right, right, right. Uh, so yeah. who's, who's, um, oh, a Seacon? Who's that? Is, what, what, well, no, I mean, I know who she is. What role does she have on the gym, on the bridge? 
Detmer? No, no, no. Detmer's the, the, Detmer's the pilot, though. Yes. So, yep. um, Lieutenant Joanne uh, Owasikan, who's that? Like, what's, what's her role? She sits to the left when you're looking yeah, at her. Yeah, she sits to the left, yes. Yeah, so right. she's kind of... Um, uh, she's on the con station, so she'll be kind of responsible for sensors. Basically, the stuff that Data right. was doing. Okay. All right. um, so in the original series um, and in Discovery, navigation is on the left, and then in Next Generation, it's switched over to the right, and they switch those stations over. Ah, uh, okay. So right. she's basically doing what Data would be doing on right. the Enterprise D, or what um, right. uh, Chekhov was doing on the original series. But Detmer is flying the ship. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. All right, good to know. I, I, I second Alistair's point as well. I think in the first couple of seasons, that was one of my, my problems was that we didn't get to see the rest of the crew a lot. The show really wanted to be about Michael Burnham. And Joel, how you feel about George O is kind of how I feel about Michael Burnham. I think she might be the most least, I mean, the least interesting character on the show in a lot of ways sometimes. And I'm really excited that in season three, we're seeing more of the supporting cast again. because so I, I really felt like the show needed that. Mm -hmm. mm. And I and I want to give it, I want to give it props for the long burn. Like like Alistair said, like typically the crew for a Star Trek show is kind of like together by the end of the pilot, you know, and and there might be some growing pains in the first season, but really by the end of that, you, for the first season, you're still dealing with character development across that bridge crew usually. Uh, and in this, I think they they did that, but they gave a almost an entire season to Burnham. Uh, I would say hmm. season two was a lot of character um, development for Saru. Uh, and I mean, obviously Pike as well, but like, I feel like Saru hmm. uh, was like the, the, the next Saru and Tilly, I think in season two were like the two big, like we're really going to boost these characters up to the next level. Uh, maybe a little bit as well on um, what's his name there. The sport drive guy Stamets. Um, but then now that we're into season three, they're really hammering home like the core bridge crew and the core engineering crew. Like you're back to like the Geordi data, you know, wharf. Like you're, you're back to like the, the main kind of everybody, a doctor, you know, like it's, it's, it gets, it's, mm. and it's not a trope. It's just like, you're back to like a little bit more of the classic kind of screen time that all of these characters would get in the, in the other series. Uh, and I quite like it. Um, it's a little different. And so going into season three, one of the first things that struck me uh, to, to talk about Michael Burnham stretching her legs, they really, they did this thing where Burnham was alone for a year in the future before discovery showed up. The, the jump mm. was like offset. And so she's changed and grown as a person, which is nice because then you don't have to watch that growth over the course of a yet another season. Um, cause I did find Burnham to be kind of one note and it, it, they have seeing her have more emotions, even if it does involve her being high from someone shooting her with like truth serum spray or something. Um, I really thought that the first episode did a great job of like, it feels like Trek. It has some adventure. It has some problem solving and it has some drama and boy, did it have some laughs. And yeah, it's just uh, nice to see her happy and hopeful. Yeah. And, <laughs> but like I was, I was giggling to myself watching, uh, I think it was episode one where she, she ends up at this station where they're supposed to barter for information. 
and they spray mm. her with this truth stuff. And then she gets into a laser fight, like a, a, a gunfight with these new like things that cover your entire hand. It's almost like they're fighting with Mega Man blasters, uh, which <laughs> I was which, thinking Mega Man when I saw yeah, them as well, <laughs> which look entirely non-practical for the future. It's like, did they get bigger? Like, aren't things supposed to get smaller and more lethal in the future? But anyway, they're having this like laser blaster fight and she is giggling to shit herself because she's high and these things are just so cool. And she does that thing where she shoots somebody with it or shoots at somebody with it. And then just like giggles to herself with glee. Like that was amazing. And I, it, like, <laughs> it was just so honest and it really allowed, I think, um, Martin green to like stretch her acting legs as well to not, so not be this like, you know, human raised by Vulcans kind of like cold, uh, um, quiet, shameful. Like, there's all this guilt that she has from the first two seasons, and I feel like she's finally taking a breath uh, in season three. And I really, I can't really say the same about her actions in season three so far. But for the most part, her mm. attitude, her dialogue, her presence, her interaction with everybody else has been a breath of fresh air. Uh, I, I quite enjoy that mood because. I think you're kind of like you're along for the ride with with Burnham in season three in terms of like you're supposed to sort of see this crew in this season through her eyes as you always have been. But it's it's a nice it's like you said, Alistair, it, there's hope, but then there's also work. And then there's also this learning where now that they've got this. Well, they're stranded. Like they're unique in that they're 900 years into the future. They're the only crew that's experienced this and they're all going through the same thing together. So you'll have more opportunity for different kinds of interaction, less formal interaction. Um, mm. Characters are having conversations. They're not just shooting Star Trek babble at one another, you know, like all the time. It's funny. I, I have a, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that I think, um, Siegel Martin Green has been given more space to sort of realize the character a little bit more. And I really enjoyed the same scene you noted where she was kind of hit with like the truth serum. I thought, she, I thought that was really funny. Mm -hmm. I, I really liked that scene, but I, I have a very different interpretation of Burnham so far in season three. And for me, it stems from a scene in, I think it was episode three with George O where jo George O basically says to her, you can't go home again. You've been gone for a year on your own, independent, not taking orders from anyone. And now you have to reintegrate back into the ship right? and back into Starfleet and back into this hierarchy. And you have to take orders again. And I can already tell you can't do it. And I know you didn't watch episode six, but they, they kind of touch on that again in episode six. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I see out of Burnham's actions through season three so far is the fact that she really can't reintegrate back into Starfleet like her actions and her words are not lining up like she's initiating gunfights and she's shooting unarmed people she's undermining authority she's still you know because she can't go home again she can't just give up that freedom she can't just get up and go chase book wherever across the galaxy anymore because they're back at Starfleet now yeah. and she has to reintegrate into that and I hope they continue with that, actually. I think that's a really interesting idea that mm -hmm. she's struggling to, you know, maybe be what she thought she was or what everybody thought she could be. And I, she knows it. You know, yeah. In the yeah, she knows way it. That she, she turned down the captain's chair completely without hesitation, just going, I, that's not me. I'm not going to be the right person for the captaincy. That is you, Saru. 
Yeah. yeah. Are we on yeah, board with Saru as captain? Do we like Saru as captain? I, I'm still on the I fence. I do. I, I, I like, like I think I like with how much he's grown from being this very paranoid uh, kind of character to, um, you know, suddenly going through an evolution and he's suddenly got all of this confidence now. He's had to deal with his own anger issues and now he's kind of reached that point where he is a captain, but he's now having to deal with Burnham being like a petulant child. Mm. And right. he's kind of needing to do his role as captain, but he's like, I shouldn't have to parent you. But that's what I'm having to do right now, and you need to go to your room. Mm -hmm. Is effectively how he's trying to deal with things, um, whilst also trying not to get Discovery kicked out of Starfleet. Yeah, I, I think it might be just because Saru is such a different character. I don't mean that he's an alien. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean that he's he's just so soft spoken most of the time. Uh, I, I feel like one of my biggest beefs with season three and it's, it's it feels like touchy feely whisper truck like it just there's every like there's no raised voices ever they're always just kind of like having these soft conversations and sometimes they're not friendly like if they're if they're interacting with one another and they're like correcting like you said if, if, if he's parenting her he's still kind of like making these suggestions of like, perhaps you should take your tone a little bit differently next time so that I, we, you know, as a crew don't have to bear the brunt of your, you know, brashness, blah, blah, blah. And I just feel like he's always just so monotone with that kind of stuff. And I find like, it's like, I kind of want to shake him and like, Sheru, get mad. <laughs> like, you, it, you, it's, you know, it's a tough line to walk. Yes, though, I agree. Because Star Trek has always, you know, I mean, in fact, one of Gene Roddenberry's rules was, there's no arguing on the ship, you know, which especially for next generation was a massive uh, restriction for the writers. They're like, wait, so we can't have any internal conflict. Well, where do we get the drama from? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, so if you have too much of it, it takes it away from Star Trek. Yeah, uh, they managed to get the balance right in DS9, but that's because a lot of that was coming between the Starfleet and non-Starfleet characters. Right, that's where that was coming from. Um, so they were able to do a bit more in Voyager. It was the fact that you had Starfleet and McKee, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of understand it to a degree, just because it does make the risk of it getting away from what Star Trek is and what we're supposed to be like as a civilized culture at some point in the future. Well, I mean, I we're get not right now, but well, I get then. that. <laughs> I get that the twenty in twenty twenty, like in terms of like when you're writing a show, like forgetting that you're you know immersed in Star Trek, but when you're writing a show that's being aired and consumed in twenty twenty, I mean, maybe what the world hmm. world re needs right now is some love and understanding. And I'm not saying that that's not you know valid. I'm saying that maybe not what I want out of Star Trek. Uh, and, or if it happens with, with that understanding, I kind of want it to be less, um, family meeting, you know, and, mm -hmm. and more, the moral <laughs> of fair. the story is not going to be lost on me. I don't need to have a sit down with dad, AKA Saru and have it spelled out for me. Um, but I, like I, 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 on the flip side, uh, this is my, to my knowledge, the first time that I've seen an alien captain in as, a, mm. as as like a main lead actor in a Star Trek series, like that's I'm not wrong there, right? Yeah, now we we've certainly seen so. the alien right. captains, but uh, not in terms of the lead. Yeah, right. I mean, like I knew I knew Worf was a captain at some point, but like just not in terms of like you are now the the captain. Like 
if as discovery continues on down the line, provided that Saru remains the captain, I mean, like you're talking about, you know, Jean-Luc Picard, Saru, you know, Janeway, uh, Kirk, like these are the captains, you know, like that you're talking about, yeah. you know, Pike, you know, in the upcoming series. I mean, Doug Jones is going to be ecstatic. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that's, he's a, I mean, I know, um, shout out to Megan, who's, who's uh, a regular on the show. She loves Doug Jones uh, and cannot say enough good things about what he does as Saru. And, and I agree with her. I mean, the writing for the character aside, I find him very interesting and, and, and everything that Doug Jones is doing to encapsulate Saru and communicate that character to us is just, it's really interesting to watch. Uh, and mm. uh, it's weird. I only just noticed it this week, probably because the Mass Effect uh, uh, re-release, the the remastering of Mass Effect has been um, announced and the trailers are out and stuff for a 2021 um, revisit to Mass Effect, the series, the video game. And Saru looks an awful lot like Garrus uh, from a certain angle. And, and I think it's only because in the last uh, couple of episodes, um, we've seen a lot of Saru from the point of view of Burnham, who's quite short compared to him. And so you've been looking up at Saru quite a bit as captain. And, and I'm, I'm remembering a lot of those kind of shots from, from Mass Effect because Garrus is a tall, is a tall character. Uh, and it just, and, and so I kind of had that reflection, not in the, that they're alike in any way, just in terms of that they look similar in terms of their silhouette profile, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like, I like the crew dynamic. Like you said, like, I like what's going on with the, um, with Detmer, you know, with, uh, I, I could take or leave Stamets. I'm going <laughs> to, I'll fight you on this. James. I, <laughs> I, he's one of those characters where like in a couple of episodes this season, whenever he opened his mouth, I was like, dude, I get it. You're stubborn. Like I, I get it. You're, you're stubborn and you're injured and you're going to do it anyway. Like, can you just go do it rather than telling everyone about it? Because I just, I did find it started to get like a a broken record. I feel the same way about Philippa Giorgio. I version two doppelganger, whatever you want to call her. She is one note and I, I can't fault the actor. The writing for her this season is boring. She doesn't, need to be in the scene she's in she doesn't really there's been a hint about it in the i only watched season episode five in season three so far there's a hint of it where she's been affected somehow or her universe is being we, farther we see apart. a little bit more in episode six as well mm. they they still haven't kind of gotten to it yet yeah but there's yeah something's they're, they're going on to more. try and make her story interesting because they got to do something because i zero zero fucks <laughs> given they, about they giorgio do, right they, now they've been talking about her running a section 31 tv series spin-off we have uh, no idea if that's still in production uh mm. when it's going to be set if uh you know what's going to happen in terms of her but she may end up leaving discovery uh to have that spin-off show we just we don't know yet uh but just I going back to what want... you're saying about Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was just going to jump in. I do not want a Section Thirty One Star Trek show. I, I that's a whole conversation for for a different time. But I, I, do, not, <laughs> I do not want a Star Trek Section Thirty One spinoff. Section Thirty One yeah, is like the, is the spy stuff, right? That's the the yes. under the radar yeah, governmental. I, I think having type. a series with Pike is definitely higher up on people's priorities. Yeah, right now. yeah, Absolutely. I would agree. Section Thirty One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I I would be perfectly happy if all production uh, resources have gone from that to the, the new show with Pike. Um, but going back to what you were saying about Stamets, 
and you know just his behavior and stuff it's one of the reasons i love jet marino who just yes. ends up just kicking his ass and putting him down every single time and there's this whole i hate you i hate that you're like this but it's it's always done so playfully and i, I just love that banter between the two of them Mm. Yeah, just, there's a real they're, love they're doing the there, job. you know. Like, yeah. They're doing their job, but there's a banter there, and I think the casting, King Notaro, was a perfect choice for that. And to your point, Alistair, yeah. I love the rapport that all three of them have. It's not just Stamets and and Reno, but Tilly as well. All three mm. of them have this really nice dynamic, and they kind of touch on it in episode six. I know you haven't seen it yet, Joel, but they they, they touch on it a bit more. And uh, I I totally agree, Alistair. They're great together. What? So what? Um, Tig. Uh... Nataro, like, what has she been in? Like, because I recognize her the moment that I saw her, but it's not she's like comedian. I can place her. Oh, is that what it is? I've just she's a yeah. stand up. Mm. Okay, she's stand up comedian. Uh, she's. Okay. I'm sure she's been on on TV and other stuff before, but I I know her primarily through stand up comedy. Yeah, I've probably seen her like on like a Letterman interview or or Tonight Show or or Instagram or something. You know, where just things go fly yeah. by. You yeah. don't really recognize her. So, because it's it's one of those things where like I. I can appreciate the writing for her. I, that, she would, I would say maybe she's the actor that I get the least kind of like smooth vibes off of. I kind of feel like her lines are very much lines. I don't really feel like there's a lot of conversation, but like, that's also the purpose that she serves. Like you guys said, is like, she's mm. kind of, she's kind of one lining, you know, insults and taking down, uh, taking down Stamets and Notch or far or four <laughs> as he, as, <laughs> as he like, could be taken. Down. I feel like she's necessary for Stamets to grow. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that her knocking him down is going to make him realize the kind of way he behaves. And I think that he'll be better for it. I think his character will be a lot more interesting going forward because of it. Had, I, had they not brought her on the show, I think that he, he would just get run into the ground as a very one note. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. There was a, there was a scene in the most recent episode that I watched, episode five, where um, one of the officers from Starfleet headquarters was observing Tilly Stamets and what's Natarl's character's name? Jet Reno. Jet Reno. Um, all kind of like figuring out how to, you know, do this um, radiation thing. They were trying to save somebody, and it was a very unprofessional exchange. Like they're all basically just like completing one, you know, one another sentences. Tilly is saying, duh, you know, to, to his superior officers and stuff. And the, the, the woman from the, 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 the space station was just kind of like, this is incredibly unprofessional. And they acknowledge it. They say, yeah, yeah, but it's, you know, it works. And then Stamets is like, and we like it. And then Reno just does not miss a beat. She's like, mm -mm, no, we don't we 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 put up with it we don't like it you know and it, and they don't hang on it very long the scene cuts almost immediately thereafter but it was just i got a i got a chuckle out of it and so stuff like that i think the problem that i have with stamets is like he's much better when there's two or three people it's mm. the, it's the monologues where he just kind of falls flat for me and i think it's better when he's got like two or three people and you've got that kind of like quick banter or not just banter, but like quick information going back and forth. I find that it's it's a much better kind of dynamic for me with with that character. Um, it's a bit more reminiscent of McCoy and Spock. A little bit, there, little yeah, a little bit. You're right, yeah, yeah. So James, I know that you mentioned before that you kind of picked up on the on the season long arc with with season two. I feel that season three is being too episodic. Have you felt that that's been a switch, and for the better? I think it's a switch, and I do think it's a switch for the better. I do not necessarily like the sort of mystery box style of storytelling that we've kind of gotten from J.J. Uh, Abrams and sort of his his crew. 
uh, of which Kurt Alex Kurtzman is a part of uh, over the years. I, I, it wasn't that it was bad, but the fact that we had this one season long arc of you know, what is the Red Angel, this mystery box thing, I, eh, it, it, it's harder to get into because you can't like pick an episode and put it on in the background sometimes. You really do have to watch it in an order and you have to pay attention. Mm. And if the payoff at the end doesn't really work for you, then that the whole season basically doesn't work for you. Right. I feel mm. I feel like in season three, I I'm still not sure I, I care too much to know what the burn is. But I think they struck a better balance more along the lines of what DS9 did with the, the Dominion War, where we have our overarching storyline that we are advancing at times, but we also have uh, individual episodes that uh, are sort of more self-contained. And I think they, they found the balance a bit more uh, in season three to my taste compared to season two. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of hitting the nail on the head. Like, um, uh, like I've tried to kind of go back and watch, and I've really just had to kind of start from the beginning, and, you know, or there's only like a couple of episodes you can just pick out, which is like a, an individual thing. But when you've got episodes like Forget Me Not, which was the fourth episode, um, yes. where you basically just get so much about the trill. That was a great yeah. episode. I love yeah. that episode. Because the trill we've not really known that much about realistically because in next generation it kind of showed that starfleet knew that the trill were a species but it wasn't widely known about the symbiotic nature in ds9 we only knew about it because cisco was friends with curzon dax who then became jadzir dax and then dax returned as esri dax so we've really only dealt with one trill and just some of the relationships that she's had with other trill around mm-hmm. um but it's been very limited so to see even more of Trill Society, and mixing it in with this is the first time that a, that a Trill symbiote has joined with a non-Trill is really interesting as well. Uh, and I and, think that... And also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but also the first time that um, a transgendered actor has been on Star Trek, right? Yes. Uh, I think so. Transgendered yeah. actor and non-binary as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm scrolling through IMDb here, but the pictures are very, very small. I'm trying to find um, the actor's name, but <laughs> I'm, I'm failing it uh, because I quite, I quite like their performance. You know, like it's, uh, and it's a really great way to do it within Trek because with the symbiotes, they remember all of the memories from other. Um, hosts that they've had and it doesn't matter whether those hosts have been non-binary whether they've been identified you know whether they identify as male female not whatever uh doesn't you know multiple different personalities and it kind of creates this really unique opportunity to reflect kind of like that kind of character on screen and and have those kind of um not say multiple feelings, but like uh, that plethora of information in one being, one person is is mm. a really cool way to put forth um, this kind of milestone in Trek, which I think is, I mean, kudos to them. It's, it's, it's um, you and I have talked about it before with like the, the CW stuff being like after school special about things. <laughs> and it, and it's really it's important but it's also very hard to 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 deal with and i think they did with forget me not being i think one of my favorite episodes of the season 
Um, I think they did an excellent job with the writing. They really, they really did. They did the character justice and they, they gave the actor and, and the character a lot of breathing room. And, and it was, uh, just, uh, it was just well done without kind of mm. hammering for, for my thesaurus. It's just, it was just really well done. I so think I, you hit I've the nail on the head, Joel. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I've got names there as well. So Adira was played by Blue Del Barrio. Right. And thank you. Um, and the previous host of the Tell uh, Trill was uh, Ian Alexander. Right. Yeah. And I think we're going to get more of Ian Alexander in the show because mm. they're now kind of like, I don't want to say a voice in their head, but like they see them, right? They, they, yeah. they see them and they haven't told anybody that they've seen them. I, I've, the only thing I saw with, uh, with that character, this particular episode was that they went on board sick bay for scans and that was it. We never saw them again. Um, mm. so I'm, sh I'm sure we'll get more later on. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, oh yeah, there's, uh, there they are. Blue Del, Del Barrio. Um, yeah. Adira is the one of the, yeah, one, one of the characters that I, I'd, I'd be interested in your, your feedbacks on as well. Um, what did you guys think of Cronenberg's, uh, appearance in the show? So he was the, oh, that was the interrogator in yeah, episode five, was, uh, interrogating Giorgio. So I did, David Cronenberg. I didn't know who it was. Like, I mean, I'm, I just kind of looked at it like, this is too much of a very specific look and an attention given to this particular uh, interrogation. Cause there were multiple interrogations with different characters in that episode. And I was just like, I'm going to have to look up who this old dude is later. Cause I don't know who it is. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be, you know, Trek related or some sort of nod, but I just, I don't know who this is right now. <laughs> no, I didn't realize it was Cronenberg. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I thought it was I, a great I, exchange. I it was, the writing was good. Mm. Mm. I, I agree. I think it was a great exchange. And I think it's nice for George O to finally have a foil in a way, like someone mm. who's not in, in a way that like Leland in season two kind of wasn't, you know, Cronenberg's uh, uh, character wasn't intimidated by her, wasn't afraid of her in any way. He knew how to handle her. He knew how to get what he wanted out of her without overplaying his hand to a degree. It was nice for her to have that foil because I, I think, Joel, I'm, I'm a lot like you, maybe even more so. I think the very presence of Mirror Universe Giorgio in this show still is just kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like that moment in season one where Burnham like, kidnaps her basically and brings her back to the prime universe i'm just like what are we doing <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> what's the point of this so i i appreciated cronenberg's appearance and being able to be that foil to her because i think that mm. character needed it i also did yeah. not realize that cronenberg was canadian hmm. i didn't know that either actually yeah yeah um born in toronto <laughs> oh from where you yeah. know yeah um yeah that's a cool note uh yeah i enjoyed the scene uh and uh mm. like i just the the attention to detail and the the that was one of those things where his lines didn't feel so much like lines that they did more i feel like clever manipulation to george o and there was one really good moment i don't remember exactly what he said but he basically called her out he basically had figured out how she was feeling and there was a moment where you could see the emotion kind of briefly wash over her face and then she came back with some giorgio 
you know, snipe, um, which was, you know, typical. But but there was a moment where you got to see maybe a little bit more uh, emotion and, and depth to the character. I was like, oh, more of that, please. You know, like, <laughs> was it when he he said to her, there's someone you care about on the crew? Uh, I don't know. Was, if it that, was that was that the moment? There was. It was more personal than that. It was. It was. I think. But right before he said that, I don't remember exactly what it was. But there was something about was, how was she it about was the feeling. questions? Because I I love when um mm-hmm. you, you know when it's kind of like you know who's going to ask who the question and uh, is like and even if you did you'd lie. So the only way I glean any information is by the questions you'd ask me. So please. yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. remember exactly what it was, but it was something a little bit more. It was something a little bit more telling about Giorgio and how she was feeling, but I don't think it was how she was feeling about Burnham because that's not a giant secret. And I don't think she thinks that's a giant secret either. It was something about how she's feeling about whether it was like she was being insecure or she feels very distant from her universe or something was just not right. And he kind of like figured that out. Um, Mm. I don't remember exactly what the phrasing was, but it was a a cool scene for for sure. Um, I... I'm on board with some of the episodic stuff. Uh, I do find that it gets a little bit, um, it gets tied up with a nice neat little bow sometimes where I'm just kind of like, these are all humans, adults that are not getting along. And I don't feel like the level at which that they are not getting along can be tied up in 45 minutes. Even if it's supposed to be a day or so in, you know, trek time, I just don't see people moving forward that fast. There was one of the ones where like it was a family dinner that Saru tried to arrange and basically everybody has this eruption. They fight, they snap at one another. Crew level stress levels are really high. But by the end of it, you had half of the people like saying like, oh, I'm sorry. And everybody making up and having, a, you know, having a nice time. And while I appreciate that's what's going to eventually happen, it did strike me as unrealistic that it happened in such a short time period. Um, especially with characters like Stamets that just like, if he's going to apologize, the, the impression that I get, it's going to take him a really long time and I'm okay with that, but it just feels like it was a little bit ham fisted in, in some instances. Um, and like you said, uh, James with Burnham, not, uh, not really fitting in, not really coming back after being a year kind of on her own and not taking orders from anybody. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I agree with you now, but coming into this podcast, I was thinking like, I am kind of tired of Burnham not learning her lesson, you know, of not like <laughs> of yes, being told I, to yeah. obey orders and then saying, yes, I will obey mm-hmm. orders. And then the moment she has an opportunity, she doesn't obey orders. It's like, but you just said that you were going to do it. <laughs> you know, like that was my problem with episode one. She's like, Oh, she says her and Georgia agree. Like we're just, we're going to kind of talk to the Klingons. And then Burnham tries to start a mutiny. Yeah. And it's like, what are we doing? Yeah. But I, I think season three, they put a nice framing on it this time. Yeah. I, now that like, now that you're mentioning that, I think I might have to just be more patient with that particular storyline. I think that's probably where I am with it, but I'm on board. I'm enjoying it. I, I can't remember all of the moments that I found fun. Uh, I, I'm certainly feeling like um, the writing for the show has been, has been the best so far. Uh, I'm like, I'm like you, I'm not interested in any kind of like dual universe stuff. I kind of just want to stay in one place. I get enough of that from comics. I don't, I don't, I don't need multiple universes in, in Star Trek. Um, at least not on a regular well, basis. I, yeah. I do like that. They kind of pointed out that cause we ended up with quite a lot of crossovers, especially in DS nine to the mm-hmm. mirror universe, which is supposed to be like the one closest to us in terms of the sort of the universe, the multiverse kind of thing. 
Uh, but the fact that it's almost been kind of getting further and further away and there hasn't been a crossing in so long. 500 years, they said, yeah. Yeah, that that's that's kind of uh, neat. And that it's not going to be easy for her to get back, for one, but also we're not going to see like mirror universe stuff popping up as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, looking ahead, uh, as I often do, especially since uh, Star Trek Picard, you know, has become a, a thing, uh, I'm noticing that uh, Jonathan Frakes is directing not not one, not two, but three episodes this season, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah uh, looks like the second to last. So episode eight and episode 12 are both um, Frakes and episode three was as well. Uh, People of Earth when they went back to Earth for the first time. Um, yeah, so that's, which was so well done. As yeah, well. no, I well, I lo- I just like his directing stuff. Like I remember going mm. back and looking at the episode because he directed one of the episodes of Picard, did he not? Or at least one. He, yeah. I think he did two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and going back and realizing that was a really good episode, and then when we talked about it in the show, I realized, oh well, <laughs> now I know why. <laughs> I mean, for a number of reasons, but usually when I really am am struck by something, it's like, oh, because Frakes directed it. <laughs> that that kind of that kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's six episodes of Discovery and two episodes of Picard. Right, that's what it was. I think uh, I think Frakes has directed some really good episodes in Discovery. I thought episode three of the the ones he's directed in Discovery might be the weakest. Not bad, but maybe the weakest. Um, yeah, I th- I think there was for me there was parts of it where it's like, oh yeah, cool, and then other parts was like, mm, I'm, I might not, be, yeah, might not be on board. Um, but like sometimes with directing an episode within a series, you kind of have like you kind of have to deal with the plate that you've been given in terms right. of and what, I, yeah, I think what you just said there is how I feel about his episodes of Picard because I think Frakes is a good director, but I generally did not like Star Trek Picard. In fact, I. I really didn't like it. And I think Frakes was just given a bad hand in those two episodes. Mm. And so I know Frakes is a good director, but for me, not even he could save the card. Wow. That's Strong. a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you back I... when Picard's back on, if you even watch it. Uh, provide the voice of reason. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Alistair, but both you and I really enjoyed Picard, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I really did like it. Um uh, I may be more forgiving with Trek, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that's all it is. I have um, a soft spot. I, I do for... wonder, though. Yeah, I, I I do wonder if they kind of looked at the scripts and went, "These are the weakest ones. We need to get the best director that we can." Right. And as we can only afford him for a few episodes, we'll get Freaks to do those ones. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Maybe. Which is perhaps that's, which is perhaps why they're weak, but they're not terrible. Right. He may yes. have actually just kind of helped save those episodes. Save those episodes. From episodes being yeah. Terrible. Uh, well, before we wrap things up here, uh, any any final words, James, on Discovery? Like, are you on board for season three? Are you going to keep on going? Have, have you, has the Discovery hooks embedded themselves in you? I think that's an interesting question because I got asked that last week at my Thursday board game group. I had mentioned I was doing the podcast and a friend of mine said that they had started Discovery and then they put it down and then they asked me, does it get any better? And I said, eh, eh. Not really. Like I, I wouldn't advise you to pick it up. But that was before I started watching season three. And I think season three has turned it around enough that the hooks are into me and I'm going to keep going now that I'm caught up and I'm going to keep watching. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it now more and uh, I'm going to keep going. Do you think that having watched season one and two, the character development in season three, it's more of a payoff rather than someone just kind of jumping in to season three? I've thought about that question too, actually. Because much like Alistair writing his book about uh, the guide to Star Trek, I actually did that for some coworkers recently where I helped them get into Star Trek and I had to like sort through 
what is important and what's not important. And I asked myself about Discovery recently, where season three is such a hard kind of reset of what the show is. Do you need to watch seasons one and two? Could you just jump in at season three? Because if you watch the way season three is kind of shot in position, it's kind of shot that way. You know, she lands on a planet. Where is she? She doesn't know. Mm. And you can you can jump in there. Yeah. And still have some fun. I think though that there is enough in seasons one and two that there is a bit of a payoff. Uh, for example, going back to Stamets, one of the things I loved about Stamets was uh, they're not afraid to put his relationship with Hugh front and center and that sort of emotional arc he had with loss and trying to cope with that loss. And then I, I thought that was a really great uh, uh, angle and there's a great kind of payoff for that as we go. Mm-hmm. So I, I will say that seasons one and two are a bit of a slog, but I think there's enough of a payoff there in season three to keep going. And Alistair, what about you in it- season three? Are you, are you, like, I mean, obviously oh, you're uh, enjoying it, but like, are you, is there anything you're looking forward to or is there anything you're concerned about in season three? Um, I am just kind of looking forward to kind of where things are going. We had a little bit of a teaser. They, they always show a teaser the next episode. And one of the characters looked Vulcan. And when you look at his lapel, there's an icon that has the Vulcan... Um, uh, kind of symbol uh, for you know infinite diversity and infinite combinations, um, along with the Romulan symbol as well, which kind of shows that there has been a unification of Vulcan and Romulus. Oh, interesting. Which is what Spock had been trying to do throughout Next Generation, and what Picard has been trying to do in Picard, which is you know kind of bring peace with the Romulans and and so so the fact that we get this unification there, there's just so many little things like that that's kind of pulling me in, and I'm kind of wondering. You know where things are going with the burn, um, you know. So that that I really like. But this has been kind of the I don't know whether to call it a reputational curse of Star Trek, uh, which is that with the exception of the original series, which had a great first two seasons and then the third one was considered its weakest. Uh, from Next Generation onwards, the first two seasons of each show have kind of been deemed the weakest for the most part. And season three is when those shows have really kind of found their footing and picked things up. Um, you know, and like you guys have been mentioning earlier, that they've, you know, they've kind of got on track now with stuff. Um, you know, James was saying it's kind of been hard rebooted for stuff, mm-hmm. uh, especially as they've even updated the ship now. So it's almost kind of like the issues that they had, even with just the model, they've kind of fixed up and it looks so much nicer now. Um, you've got that to look forward to yet, uh, Joel. Um, but yeah, I, I think season three is when these shows seem to kind of get their footing. And I, I think as a, a starting point for that, I think that the next few seasons, and they planned out to, I think season six or seven, they've already got the the path of what they've got planned that quite far out, which is very reassuring for me. Nice. Yeah. No, I... I would say, you know, japes and, you know, nitpicks aside, I think that it's probably the strongest season so far. It it certainly feels mm. the most familiar while also being very, very new and very interesting in terms of where the Federation is and what we're going to expect from technology and different stories and things. But I'm I'm seeing those Star Trek canon moments of like, you know, commanders and captains and, you know, captains and number ones and, and um 
the relationship that the doctor has with everybody and like the those kind of things the camaraderie i think with the crew is starting to gel and, and i think that it it lends itself more to more human storytelling as opposed to like the the crazy sci-fi adventure that we've been on the last two seasons and so i'm mm. i'm looking forward to it I, I mean i'll keep on watching i do there are episodes where i read the synopsis you know on crave i'm just like oh god and i obviously burnham defies orders and does something with Giorgio, and it's going to be a slog but ultimately when i watch those episodes there is something else that happens that i find interesting or cool with other characters uh to go back and, and back up your point james about like the supporting cast kind of coming back up and feeling like a, a lot more attention is being given to them they'll help when the main characters doing something where you're just kind of like, oh God, I roll. It, there's always someone that's not doing something that has, you know, that 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 doesn't make, like there's always someone that's doing something that's not making you roll your eyes. There's always something um, to kind of grasp onto from all the episodes. I do agree with you there. I, I do agree. Moving on into the Internet Minute, which is brought to you by you. The Citadel Cafe is listener supported. If you are enjoying the show, please consider putting a little bit of value back into it. You can become a member at patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. Supporting at any level will get you an entry uh, into our, our Discord only uh, member server. And uh, we chat there about nerdy stuff all week long. It's a lot of fun. Uh, patron count is currently at 22. Uh, I try to add one new patron every month, so we're currently behind on that. So if you'd like to be the next patron of the Citadel Cafe, check out patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe and join the crew now. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was going to make that pun. Um, I have a very quick pick. Uh, I did not realize that this series existed until I just kind of found it browsing around looking um, for some environmental related news. Uh, solar powered trains in the UK, India and Australia. It's uh, on the BBC. It's a short three-minute video. It's a film for People Fixing the World by Richard Kenny. Uh, People Fixing the World is a BBC series. It's online videos, vignettes, uh, little news clips, and, and things that people are putting together from stories from people doing just really cool things to help make the planet a better place. And a lot of it, as you can imagine, focuses on uh, the environment. And this is more of a proof of concept in the video where solar panels are being laid along the tracks in the UK uh, to help offset you know, greenhouse gases and provide uh, these trains with renewable energy because trains apparently are the number one consumer of electricity in the UK. And uh, they, the panels along the side of the road are not, or the tracks are not necessarily powering an entire train. It's more like 10%, you know, of that particular train's route. So it's, it's a very finite sort of situation. But as a proof of concept, hmm. it means that these two technologies can interact quite easily. So you just have to scale it up. And with solar power becoming more, you know, affordable and, you know, especially from an industry standpoint, when you have to do like fields of these things, um, it's it's going to move hopefully things a, a lot farther forward as far as being a green industry. Now, one could argue that solar power in the UK might not be the best location geographically. <laughs> Most of the people I talk to in the UK, are, it's usually foggy and rainy whenever I talk to them. So I'm not sure how much mm -hmm. solar power they're going to get. Uh, Alistair, you can probably <laughs> attest to this. Um, however, yeah. they made a big point that in India and Australia, this is taking off like wildfire because uh, obviously they're much sunnier, much warmer climates. Uh, you know, and, and uh, in Australia, actually, there is an entire train line. So one particular route that is 100% solar powered. It doesn't draw power from anything else. And I don't remember the stats. You'd have to watch the three-minute video uh, about India. But India has a lot of solar-powered trains as well, uh, some of which even have 
panels on top of the train itself, not like just on the roofs of stations or along the tracks, but on the actual train cars, there's there's solar panels there. So uh, I thought it was a cool, cool watch. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and James, you had a pick uh, for this week as well. Yeah, uh, this is not me, actually. Uh, earlier you asked about uh, social media. I don't have any uh, social media uh, profiles that are public facing. I, I am a civilian as we say. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't put myself out there uh, uh, like you or, or Alistair do. So instead, I'm going to plug my friends. Uh, I have a friend, Jimmy, who has a Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash protojimmy. Uh, I think there's going to be a link in the show notes, Joel. Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, every Friday, he and our common friend, Zach, they hang out together, uh, usually in real life, but uh, these days, sometimes you have to do it from a distance. Uh, but usually they'll hang out every Friday night. They'll play some video games. And uh, th this is two lifelong friends. Uh, and I mean that in the truest sense of the word, just hanging out, playing games, and maybe not um, family-friendly. might be a, a burp joke in there or a burp joke in there every so often. But uh, it's just two friends hanging out, playing games, really chill. Uh, currently they're playing Dark Souls 3. Uh, they're trying to get through that. Uh, my friend Jimmy was able to secure a PlayStation 5 from his local shopper's drug mart. So he's been playing Dark Souls 3 on that the last few weeks. Uh, so yeah, just go check them out. I said I'd plug my friends, uh, help them out with their, their streaming. Nice. Very, very cool. And Alistair, do you have a pick as well? Uh, yes. I, I think just to, to for everybody to kind of explore my new obsession, arcade1up.com. <laughs> Just just be able to see the kind of range that they have in terms of all these arcades that are coming out is just incredible. Um, and I would probably say, if you want to find out a little bit more um, of all the YouTube channels that I've kind of scoured for all of this stuff, of which there's been a lot, uh, Cool Toy on YouTube has, um, has done some really good reviews. He's like one of the main people they love speaking to as well. Um, and so he's done some good interviews with uh, the people running the company. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's awesome. I'm going to be so poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode of the Citadel Cafe. You can get more information about the show and links to some of the things that we talked about this week at thecitadelcafe.com. Music for the show was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can, of course, email us at thecitadelcafe at gmail.com or find the show by name on Twitter. Subscribe for free on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. But you know what? Word of mouth is the easiest way to support the show. Just tell a friend about the Citadel Cafe and where they can go to listen to it. You'd be surprised how far that goes. My name is Joel Duggan. You can find everything that I'm doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio at joelduggan.com. You can check out the Spawn Chunks, my other podcast all about Minecraft at thespawnchunks.com. Brand new snapshot for the Caves and Cliffs update came out today. So we'll be talking about that next week on the show. And of course, you can find me at Joel Duggan on social media. I'll point you towards twitch.tv slash Joel Duggan, where I'm going to be playing more Minecraft and potentially even starting a single player world in the snapshots to kind of explore that new content. Alistair, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at iMcfly. Um, and for all my streaming stuff, it's Alistair McFly on both Twitter and Twitch. Uh, and I also have a website uh, over at ohmyzod.com. And a big shout out to James for coming out and hanging out on the show. I know you don't have anything to plug, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time because uh, you're a busy dad and uh, it's been really fun to talk Trek with you, man. I hope this isn't the last time you'll be on the show. Yeah, I've had a great time. This was my podcast debut, as you mentioned. Uh, at the beginning. <laughs> um, it's definitely been busy, as you said. Uh, and I, I know we talked before the show 
Um, probably the only geeky thing I've done the last five weeks is w- watch Star Trek. So I, I didn't have anything <laughs> else to contribute. <laughs> but no, I, I've had fun. Thank you for having me. And I'd love to be on again. You've been listening to the Civil Cafe where we are fast, easy, and cheap, but you can only pick two.